Okay, Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Father, I pray that you'd anoint our time in the word, uh, that it would be rich, that it would be effective, Lord, that the seed that is sown tonight would fall on good soil and would produce fruit. Lord, help us to hear in the way that we ought to hear. And also to not be only hearers, but to to become doers of your word. Uh, Lord, as always, we thank you for the rich treasure of your word and uh, that we have such access to it. Lord, help us to be stewards, stewards of that wealth that you have poured out on us. In Jesus' name, amen. So... We're coming to the end. I, I, I want to finish up the, the, that first half of Isaiah. Um, real quick, Stephen, do you, do you think you can take this out of the monitors? Above your pay grade? Okay. Not a problem. We're missing our, our guru back there tonight. And you could really sum up the first half of Isaiah. Um, that... Well, it would be too hard to sum up. I'm not going to try to sum up. That there is judgment coming. Judgment, is, judgment awaits Judah in particular uh, at the hands of the Babylonians. That's the historical context into which Isaiah is prophesying. And he's trying to get the people of Israel to realize, number one, why judgment is impending. In other words, what has, what has brought this upon them? Uh, why is God about to judge the nation? Did we lose it completely? No, we're good. Okay. It was just so loud back here that it was like, here in Isaiah it says, you will hear a voice behind you. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing a voice behind me. Why is judgment coming? There are two, uh, well, the, the, the clearest historical narrative in here that Isaiah includes is the story of Ahaz. And he was a king who trusted everything but God. He trusted every idol but the Holy One of Israel. Okay? Um, and he looked everywhere for help except God. And that's really the, the, central, uh, the central issue in Israel. And so that, that lack of trust in God, that lack of dependence on him, has led to all sorts of wickedness amongst the people of God. And... The thing that Isaiah points to the most is, is, uh, is um, injustice or unrighteousness, that things are not functioning, the city is not operating in God's ways, that righteousness is not being done. And what that means is that the weak are being oppressed rather than protected and, and exalted, um, that, the, uh, that the wicked are being called good and the good are being called wicked. Everything's upside down. And uh, we looked last week at how when that becomes the way, the people of God have become, when that becomes the way in the city of God, the city of God has become no different than the city of man. And God has had a, a eternal beef with the city of man ever since it started, right, with Cain and Abel and, and mankind uh, living and setting up life apart from him. And so God says that, This first half of Isaiah is all about how God wanted to use Israel to bless the nations, but now he can't, and he has to take drastic measures of judgment uh, 
in order to move his purposes forward. Now, the thing that keeps popping up is that God is somehow going to remain faithful to his choice of Israel, and he is going to still use them to redeem the world. But just how he's going to do that is a little bit, a little bit cloudy, a little bit um, obscure at the moment. We get little glimmers of it. And that's when these, the messianic prophecies come in. Hey, actually, you are going to be a light to all nations. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be exalted and all nations will flow to it. But it's not going to, be, it's not going to come in the way that you ever thought. In fact, all, the, all that you see, all the city, uh, even your, your uh, identity as a nation, it's all going to have to be wiped out. You're going to be taken out of this land. All right? And that's the judgment aspect of it. But Isaiah continues to point beyond that to say, and then you're going to be brought back. And you are, in fact, going to be a blessing to all nations. But it's not going to be because of anything that you do. It's going to be because of what the Lord of hosts does. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, he says, will do this. It's going to be my own arm that brings me salvation. And so this, looking back, we can clearly see that God was indeed, in fact, himself planning on returning to Zion, coming down to Zion. And we looked at when Jesus um, entered into the city of Jerusalem, the Lord was returning to Zion as it, as it was prophesied, except he was coming riding on a donkey and he was coming to get up on a cross. And so that's kind of the mystery at the heart of these um, distant future prophecies that Isaiah gives. So this first half is all about how exile is coming. Now, the last half is about um, Israel's return from exile. And it's a prophecy of their return and how, all right, now that I have uh, executed this major act of judgment, now you're going to come back in and the city of God is truly going to be established upon the right way of life. So the issue is that God keeps sending signs and sending messages to try and get Israel to see that they're being stubborn and they're not trusting him. And particularly at this point in time, he's using the Assyrian people. He's raising them up and he is causing them. He has already used them to judge the northern tribes and they're knocking on the door of the southern tribes and they make a couple of attempts at occupying and and capturing Uh, the southern tribes, but God steps in and he says, no, I need to also remind Assyria that I'm also in control of them and they're not going to be the ones that do this. I will use them to judge my people, but then I will judge them because they are just a city of man. But Isaiah is pointing out, listen, God's using Assyria to judge you and you're going every other place for help. Right? So he's using this situation to show them their hearts. Look, who, look where you're going for help. What good is, uh, what good is Egypt going to be against Assyria? It's just another kingdom to ally yourself with that doesn't have the interests of the city of God in mind. So at the end, it's, just, it's beautiful how this section really begins... In chapter 7 with Ahaz, the story of Ahaz, the king who wouldn't trust, despite God's, God made every concession for him, right? Ask of me a sign, <laughs> make it as high as heaven or as low as hell. Anything you want, you name it, I'll do it for you. And King Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask. 
At the end of this, uh, at the end of this section, this first half of Isaiah, in the last four chapters, it's the story of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah's story goes quite a bit different than Ahaz's story. And actually, it's pretty hopeful, at least in the first part of it. All right, so this section that we're moving through tonight, which really runs from about chapter 28 through 39, really through 35, and then you pick up with the, the historical narrative in 36 through 39. This section is all about how God's trying to get them to see that all God's doing is trying to get you to trust him. Just like he worked with the Israelites in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt, he worked with them. He says he caused them to hunger so that they would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. So God's been doing this. He said, listen, I'm causing Assyria. I'm the one behind this so that you will know that if you cry out to me, I will be your God. I will help you. And he says, and they're not getting the lesson. They're not getting the message. And in fact, there's this really interesting part in uh, chapter 28. And it takes a, it, it's a little bit weird when you first read it. And I had to do some digging to, to figure out exactly what was going on here. But uh, go to verse 9 of chapter 28. So he's talking here about how, uh, he's talking about how pride has really taken over. How people don't want to humble themselves and really just hear the Lord and do what he's saying. And... Um, Verse 7 says, they also, These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine and stagger with strong drink. Um, verse 9 says, and this is in quotes, and this is what the priests would have been accusing uh, Isaiah of speaking. All right, so Isaiah was getting some negative feedback. He was getting some flack for the message that he was bringing which is basically, hey, just trust God. Just trust God. Yes, we have these problems, but these problems are not complex political issues at their root. The problem is that you won't trust God. And yes, there's complex interplay of the political geo, geopolitical powers here, but God's behind all that. And if you'll just trust him, he'll take care of all of that. Okay? That's what Isaiah said. Just trust God. Remember back in chapter 6, God told them to go and just keep telling them the simple message. Keep telling them the simple message. And their response is going to be to harden their heart further, to harden their heart further. So Isaiah keeps going. And as we go through Isaiah, it's like it sounds the same a lot. Like he keeps repeating himself. Hey, all right, we're starting another big, he's winding up for this big proclamation of judgment. And the judgment is, you're rebellious, you won't trust God. You're rebellious, you won't trust God. If you would trust him, wow, look what he can do. Whoa, he's an amazing God. <laughs> okay? So the message just keeps going and going. And so here in verse 9, this is a little bit of the, uh, the feedback that Isaiah was getting. To whom will he teach knowledge? In other words, who, what is this, who does he think he's talking to? This Isaiah, this prophet. To whom is, will he explain the message? Doesn't he know who we are? We're, we know the law. 
We are priests. We are prophets. Does he think he's talking to those who are weaned from milk? Those taken for the, from the breast? Do you think he's talking to a bunch of babies here? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. They're mocking his message. Saying, this guy has no, this guy has no answer to these really scary, big, complex political problems. All he's a, he's a, trust God. Are you going to trust God? It's just about trusting God. Precept upon precept. That's the, that's the gist of kind of the tone here. Does that make sense? Who does he think he's talking to? Going around with all this overly reductive lessons. Right? You can hear him saying there's sort of some haughty, uh, haughtiness here. And in verse 11, it says, For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. To whom he has said, listen, this is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose, yet they would not hear. You want to rest? You want, you want peace? Trust God. Trust God. Obey his commandments. Right? This is rest. Later, a little, little later, it says, in returning and rest, you will be saved. This is the message that Isaiah, this was his burden, was that he was just saying, guys, you're making it too complicated. And they're saying, but it is complicated. And you want to come in here with your little easy, oh, just trust God and everything will be okay. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord, it will be to them. Precept upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. This is just a reiteration of what God says. Go and speak to this people. But they're not going to hear. And in fact, the more you speak to them, the further away they're going to get because they're going to hear it. And in their pride, they're going to say, no, that's not the answer. And harden their heart and harden their heart more and more. One of the things that makes Isaiah a little bit hard to follow for long stretches is that he'll start out and you say, okay, I think I understand. I think I understand the situation that he's speaking into. Right? Okay, so here it says it's an oracle for this people. And then, like, for maybe two or three verses, you follow along. Okay, all right, so he thinks that this particular group of people, maybe the priests and the prophets in Judah, are proud. But then it just goes on for maybe, like, two, two more chapters. And it, he seems to have lost, like, the immediate context. Like, now he's talking about the mighty day of the Lord, and it's coming, and then in the, in the, in the latter days, and all this. And he kind of zooms way out. And this is, this is just the nature of prophecy, Right? There's a current word that applies to the current situation. But a lot of times, that word behind it is a universal principle of God. And so when the prophet starts to speak and address this current situation, it's like, and Assyria will come and will destroy you because God is moving in the earth and he uses the nations of the earth to judge when his people are astray from him. Does that make sense? So a lot of times that's what Isaiah is doing. And that's what's happening all through this section. So it's a little bit hard to follow like a single 
situation. But luckily, it kind of goes in cycles, right? Here's why the people won't trust. Here's what they're saying. And here's, what's God, here's what God is doing in, uh, in response to that. But luckily, it all sort of gets summarized in that Hezekiah story. Everything that he's been trying to say through the mouth of the prophet, we see at work in sort of a, a, a narrative situation. All right, so let's go to the end there. And then we'll come back and read. Um, we'll read from chapter 30. And you can see how the prophecy would have applied to uh, the current situation that is, is being described. So in chapter 36, uh, the king of Assyria does come up and launches an attack. And this is one of the places where God... So, well, let's just... We've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go through the whole story, but I want to point out a couple things. Um, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Um, verse 4, the Rabshakeh, there's our buddy the Rabshakeh, uh, it's basically just a high-ranking official of the Assyrians. Um, the, the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Okay, so trust is the issue. Trust was the issue with Ahaz. Trust is the issue with Hezekiah. Trust has always been the issue. Do you think that mere words and strategy are power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And this is very interesting. God has just been getting on them for trusting Egypt. And then the Rabshakeh starts to get on them for trusting Egypt. <laughs> he joins in. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff. Even, even the worldly powers know that Egypt's no good. Right? No, that's not going to work for you, guys. Which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. All right, so... What do you say, Hezekiah? You're going to trust in Egypt? Ah, that's a terrible idea. Okay. Well, maybe you say you're going to trust in Yahweh. But if you say we trust in Yahweh, our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to, Jerusalem, to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? So he says, and that's not going to work either. All right, because you guys can't figure out just how to worship this God. Nobody knows how to do it. Hezekiah, just, he had just got, gotten done cleansing the temple. So apparently the Rabshakeh thinks that Hezekiah was um, doing something that would weaken, um, their, weaken God's ability to, to help them. He says, come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain? among the least of my master's servants, when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. Um, so the bottom line is Hezekiah, chapter 37, as soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. All right, so this, finally somebody's doing <laughs> something rational here. Right, this is, we're, we're in a totally different uh, playing field than we were with Ahaz already. 
So they go and get they go and, and ask Isaiah, go ask the prophet of God. And Isaiah gives them a word and basically says, God's got you. He's going to take care of it. And um, he says, they're, you know, in, in these mysterious ways that God suddenly confuses a foreign army and they are run into panic and end up destroying them. So that's what he does with the Assyrians. Um, so the Rabshakeh goes back to Assyria. Send, the king of Assyria sends a letter and says, hey, you know, you're, you're mine, buddy. And in verse 14, it says, Hezekiah received from the letter, the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Lord, you read this letter. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, you are enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. He gets it, right? This is, this is someone who gets it. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherim, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. Verse 20, So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Um, what a great prayer. Remember, the issue here is that the king on the throne with Ahaz, the king on the throne was the exact opposite of what God was looking for in a king of Israel. Hezekiah here, there's a lot of good things happening. And so the Lord moves on his behalf. And in verse 36, it says, The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. I mean, that's, that's quite a few bodies. <laughs> and what did Hezekiah do? He just genuinely prayed to God for help. What has, been, what has God been saying the whole time? If you will just turn to me with your whole heart, I'll hear and deliver you. What has Isaiah been saying the whole time? In returning and rest, you will be saved. Don't go to Egypt. Just seek God. And so that's a great, so we have that great positive story. But then we see um, that Hezekiah, it doesn't end on a good note. Um, and as we know from, uh, from, I think it's in the accounts in Kings. It might be the one in Chronicles. Um, I think it's Chronicles, where once stuff is going well for Hezekiah, you remember he... Uh, goes in and he, he becomes proud. He becomes haughty and starts to um, kind of trust in himself a little too much. And so chapter 38 picks up. Apparently God was uh, judging him for his haughtiness. And we pick up like right in the middle of that. We go from great victory to, and in those days, Hezekiah became sick <laughs> and he was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die you shall not recover. Hezekiah prayed. He asked God to heal him, and God heals him. Okay, so far, so good. And then there's a great song, a great um, 
song that, that Hezekiah wrote about his healing. But then in chapter 39, you know, a great end of the story would have been ending in chapter 37. Right, 185,000 dead Assyrian bodies. Yes, victory for the people of God. But that's not where we end. We actually end with a really ominous, um, kind of a cliffhanger. In chapter 39, it says, At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. Hezekiah becomes smitten with these envoys from where? Babylon. This is a classic example, an unfortunate example, of out of the frying pan and into the fire. Because Assyria, God has dealt with. But God's been saying all along, I'm going to deal with Assyria. Continue to trust me. But just in that sliver of space, the the end of the Syrians, and actually this great work of healing has happened in my life, in comes Babylon. Not Not with siege implements, but with presence and flattery. And Hezekiah goes, ooh. And he showed them his treasure house. Hey, guys, you're a, you're a superpower. Well, look what we have going on over here. Can I, can, I be in this, the, can I be in the superpower club? There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show him. And Isaiah, (laughs) oh no, not etu, Hezekiah, right? Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. And I just imagine being Isaiah, right? Yep, truly is. I'm going to continue to preach this sermon till my dying breath. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your father has stored up to this day shall be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and there shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Okay, really. For he thought there would be peace and security in my days. Well, at least, at least it's not going to happen to me. And that's where Hezekiah ends up. And that's the, to me, it ends up in chapter 39 in a very, very dark place. We end up right where we started. Where, hey, as long as, as, long as me and mine are taken care of, that's, that's fine. 
who cares how, you know, who cares the, the cost of, the, the, of my wickedness on those around me, on those coming after me? But this is, it's so subtle, right? We didn't end with Ahaz and everything coming crashing down. We end with Hezekiah, who did mostly good things and then allowed Babylon through their flattery to come and, and scope out everything. And Isaiah says, well, you just gave him the house. And you have no idea what you've done. And Hezekiah goes, well, all right, well, that's, that's fine. At least it's not going to affect me. So we end in a really dark place. And, but it's not, a, it's not a immediately dire situation for Hezekiah. And so... There's two big lessons here in Hezekiah's story, and I think they are lessons that have been echoed and visited all through this portion of Isaiah's prophecies. And the first is that when there is opposition, when there is threat, when there is crisis, there are times when God has caused that crisis. And the whole point of causing that crisis is for you to learn to trust him. And there is miraculous salvation awaiting those who in the face of this crisis that God caused, by the way. There's miraculous salvation awaiting those who will cry out to God in their crisis and receive his help. And in fact, he's waiting. And just as soon as Assyria is done teaching them the lesson that he wants them to teach, he's going to judge them. And bring them down, crashing down. Okay? So that's the first lesson. That's pretty obvious. But the second lesson Hezekiah learns is this. That in peace and prosperity, the enemy can also creep in, not through siege, but through flattery. And you're just as at risk in times of peace and health as you are in a time of crisis. In both situations, what's the answer? Like a broken record. Trust God. Trust God. <laughs> Trust God. Precept upon precept. Here a little, there a little. It's a broken record. So let's go to chapter 30. Ah, stubborn children. That's how Isaiah opened in chapter 1. Children have I raised, but they have rebelled. Ah, stubborn children who carry out a plan, but not mine. All right, you can carry out a plan, but not God's. In response to a crisis, how do we fix this thing? Somebody help us. And you can carry out a plan in time of peace. That's not God's plan. Who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt, 
right? Adding sin to sin, all right? There's the sin that caused God to need to bring judgment. (laughs) And there's the sin that won't accept his help in the face of that judgment. Adding sin to sin. All right, you were already too full of yourself and full of idolatry. I'm sending judgment to get your attention. Now that the judgment has come, you're just increasing the idolatry and increasing the rebellion. And you're adding sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking my direction. To take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame. Verse 8. And now go. Write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be forever for the time to come a, or that it may be for the time to come a witness forever for they are a rebellious people lying children unwilling to hear children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers do not see who say to the prophets do not prophesy to us what is right speak to us smooth things prophesy illusions Affirm our way of dealing with all of these things. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Thus says the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> it's like, uh, you mean me? <laughs> Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Verse 15, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That was his message. His message was never... All right, you guys have a lot to live up to. You got a lot of things you got to do for God in order to make this right. It was, just come back. Just come back. Return and rest. Stop flailing around. Stop panicking. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Some of you need to hear that. You have a reflex of, of panicking when, when, when things start to, to get out of control or you start to perceive that they're out of control. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. You were unwilling. God was not unwilling. God was not distant. You insisted on panicking. You were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. And the verse we open with, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. You know, a lot of times in Isaiah, we hear the phrase waiting on God. Those who wait on God. Renew their strength. But he also says that God's just waiting. (laughs) He's waiting for you to stop panicking. He's waiting for you to actually trust 
what he's saying and ask him for help genuinely, right? Not like, hey, a little help here. But like, there's not helping anyone else. Where else would I go for help? What should I do here? What do I do? Is this, is this opposition in my life that you're getting, that you've brought about to get my attention, to teach me to trust you? Show me. Help me see. The Lord waits to be gracious. He's just waiting. You know, you get to a point, if you've had children, you get to a point, sometimes they, I don't know if you've ever had this, where it just gets beyond like, you can't even talk to them anymore. Something happens, it's just a complete meltdown. Maybe they're just kicking and screaming on the floor. And at that point, you just kind of have to, you just kind of have to step back. <laughs> All right. Are you done? The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. So he's saying, wait on me. But what also he's saying is, I'm waiting on you to wait on me. I'm waiting. Whenever you're ready. And listen to what awaits those who get that, who who stop panicking and who learn how to wait and trust on God. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem... You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, which he does, right? Though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Don't you long for that? You come up in a situation, I don't know what to do. And we so often turn inward or we turn outward to Egypt for help. And God's just waiting. If you'll wait on me, I've got exactly the word for you. I've got exactly the way you should walk in. And your ears shall hear a word behind you when you still yourself enough to hear it. Saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right, when you turn to the left. No, 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 no. No, 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 not over there. Just stay right here. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. Those things that we run to for help that can't help us. You will scatter them as unclean things and you will say to them, be gone. Isn't this awesome? This is, this is, this is discipleship. This is being a disciple of Jesus. This is following Jesus. He shows us the way. He teaches us how to live. He gives us his Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. He'll give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and the bread, the produce of the ground. 
will be rich and plenteous. And that day your livestock will graze in large pastures. And the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder. And it just goes on and on. Describes the, the life of those who walk in the grace of God. The life that he's waiting to pour out on his people. So, that's the idea I want to I set before us tonight. That, that God waits for us to wait on him. And he's just waiting. And um, it reminds me of in uh, Revelation, with the letter to the church of Laodicea. Which, by the way, is a church not under persecution, not experiencing opposition like, uh, like early Hezekiah when Assyria came and was trying to... Laodicea is the church that was neither hot nor cold. And here's the situation of the church in Laodicea. For you say, I am rich, I have prosper, I need nothing. Right? This is, this is Hezekiah in health. <laughs> you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor. Right? Think of you at your best moment. You're still wretched, pitiable, and poor in terms of your need for God. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich in white garments, that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may be see, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And now listen, behold, I stand at the door and knock. The Lord waits. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. Isn't that awesome? This is this is the God's always been waiting for you, and he just knocks. He doesn't, come, he doesn't bring the SWAT team. He doesn't break down the door. He's knocking. And it's up to us to, to hear that and to go and open the door. Right? But if, if we are in the house scrambling around, <laughs> busy with whatever we're busy with, panicking about every little thing, and he's just sitting there knocking, waiting to come in and give us everything that we need. Who's at fault? Right? God's not hiding himself. You just have, you, he's been knocking the whole time. And you just haven't listened and opened the door. So God waits. We're called to wait on God, but before that, he's waiting for us to wait on him. He's waiting on us. And he's patient. And uh, he'll wait as long as he needs to for us to finally come to a place of complete trust in him. Amen? Um, let's just, let's take a, a moment. And uh, Stephen, if you want to come up. Is Stephen still here? No. Nope. That's fine. Um, 
Let's wait on, let's wait on God. Let's quiet our hearts. Let's receive this word and ask him to reveal any, any places in our lives where either there's, there's opposition, there's a challenge, and we're not resigning ourselves to him. We're not asking him for help. We're still, we're still trusting ourselves or we're trusting some, uh, some foreign power, some idol that's not God. Or we may uh, think that, you know, stuff's going pretty well. But there might be, there might be a, a, uh, a scout of the enemy that's coming to search out the weak spots in our life. And we're, we're just totally unaware. We're starting to get flattered. We're starting to feel, feel great about life. <laughs> and that's dangerous. We need, to, we need to continually seek God uh, for, for counsel and for protection. So let's, let's ask the Lord to come and search us. And more than anything, I, you know, let's listen for him knocking. And let's, uh, let's open the door to him and allow him to come and teach us. Help us to walk in his way. Hallelujah.